Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we aim to inspire ordinary people to achieve great things. I'm joined today by Ben Parks, who is going to co-host with a guest who is certainly at the top of his game. Andy VC is Head of Tax at Kingsbridge and has 38 years of tax experience under his belt, specialising in employment status matters. Andy has been deeply involved with IR35 since its inception in 2000 and has personally defended more than 500 cases, winning almost every single one. Most recently, he successfully represented Gensal Software at the First Tier Tax Tribunal in their highly publicized IR35 appeal. Welcome, Andy. And I appreciate you joining us today. What um, would be great is if you just um, elaborate on that uh, introduction and, and a bit more about your well uh, 30 uh, 38 years uh, if you just give us a, uh, a little bit of background into into the IR35 piece would be great yeah okay well, well David a bit of a correction it's 40 years now uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so it's been my life for 40 years how sad is that but uh, yeah um, um, brief synopsis of my career joined the old inland revenue as it was back in 1980 and that's when it was a good department to work for with some some knowledgeable people. Then I left uh, the Inland Revenue and I went into uh, into accountancy practices of various sizes. So some might say I saw the light. I qualified with the Association of Tax Te- Taxation Technicians in '93, and then in 2002 I joined QDOS, and that's where I started to specialise in employment stages, particularly IR35. And so the good majority of those. 500 IR35 inquiry cases that you mentioned in in that introduction. That was during my time at QDOS, although I've defended a few since I've joined Kingsbridge. And the vast majority of those were were all one. There was a few that you you couldn't even count on one hand that basically um, were lost only due to the fact uh, that either the client, the contractor, had just had enough um, because IR35 inquiries can linger for years and it takes its toll on some folk so that they, they were just happy to settle with with the with HMRC um, and there were probably one or two others where they should have uh, probably just conceded early on because they were just banged to rights so I spent 17 years with Kudos a long association with them and uh, ended up as head of tax there and uh, I left in January 2019 um, to join what was Larson Howie as their head of tax but uh, Larson Howie's uh, sister company was Kingsbridge I'm now head of tax at Kingsbridge I oversee the uh, the IR35 discipline uh, providing advice consultancy and uh, all things IR35 related uh, and also general tax matters as well I, I am a general practitioner but like I say I'm, I'm specializing now in status okay thanks for that and that's a great uh, great introduction and, and background and um, just enhances that credibility a bit more uh, with, with what's uh, about to be discussed um, Brexit, my my, my IR35 expertise is, uh, is about two years so it uh, puts it into perspective doesn't it I suppose <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does, but um, quick, quick first question: um, the 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 chances of the legislation being extended from, from April? You now, sort of people are thinking that it could get pushed again. What's your opinion on that? I think it's wishful thinking, uh, really, David. Neither HMRC nor the government have indicated that there will be any further postponement. And I think with the news about a vaccine being available, you know, in the springtime, probably enhances. Uh, 
the fact that it will be implemented. But what was interesting like last week with the chance of spending review, if you looked at the spending review document, page 13 of that revealed that the postponement of the off-payroll rules in April of, of, of this year has been predicted to cost the Treasury about $1.9 billion. And they go on to project that $405 million of that is expected to be raised in 2021-22, so next tax year, uh, when the the rules are set to be implemented. So, you know, unfortunately for those who might be expecting a further delay, um, then I think they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, there's a black hole in the Treasury uh, coffers, and that needs filling. And the Peugeot and NIC that the off-payroll rules will generate is going to help that sort of much-needed revenue, particularly if the Chancellor isn't going to put off introducing any major tax changes. And uh, the feeling in the profession is that he won't do that for for a little while. And, um, you know, that leads me to further um, uh, suspect or uh, uh, think that the rules will come in on April 2021. So I think it'd be folly to um to think otherwise um and you know prepare there was enough time i think to prepare for april 2020 and clients agency had another year to prepare i know we've been interrupted by covid uh, but that should be the same mentality that it's coming in and you should be preparing for that. Yeah. The reason why we kind of led with that as the first question, because I think from our experience speaking to clients and contractors, I think there is a there is a thought that, oh, it's going to get delayed again. And I think it's important that people realise that the chances of that happening are winning the lottery kind of chances. It's uh, it, it's not yeah. going to happen, is it? It's take a very big intervention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you never say never, of course, uh, because stranger things happen. And of course, uh, uh, there is some precedent for uh, postponing a piece of legislation more than once. I mean, you've had it with the domestic reverse charge for construction services. That was due to come in on the 1st of October of this year. Then it got delayed again until the 1st of March 2021. I don't think that's going to happen with the off-payroll rules. And the problem is, for those people that think uh, that, that it might and they leave it to the last minute, that's when mistakes can be made. They don't give themselves enough time and they make mistakes. Uh, and, and and for people listening or watching this, that um, I, I think when you said about preparing for this, and, and I think from our findings over over a year ago now, it was the education of, of IL35 that was that was lacking amongst, amongst the, the whole sort of supply chain, if you like. Could you just give us an overview of the legislation and what those changes will be in April. Yeah, absolutely. Just going back a few years, um, when HMRC rolled out the off-payroll rules uh, to, to the public sector, that was because IR35 is is a basic failure in terms of revenue raising. It's hopeless. You've only got to look at the stats for that and the amount of cases HMRC are losing. So and HMRC estimate that, you know, only 10% of those who should be applying IR35 actually do so. Where on earth they get those figures from, I don't know. So hence, they rolled out the rules for the for the uh, public sector. Now, the, that's been deemed a success by HMRC, but hey, it was always going to, wasn't it? You know, they were always going to say that. Uh, and they, the HMRC claim that uh, in the first year alone of those off-payroll rules being introduced, 
that raised an extra £550 million in income tax and national insurance. So it was always on the cards this was going to be rolled out to the, the private sector. So once these rules come into play in April of next year, it's going to apply to uh, medium to large-sized business organisations. So, And when you uh, uh, determine what's a medium or large-sized organisation, you've got to satisfy two out of three qualifying conditions. So turnover of the business has got to be more than 10.2 million or a gross balance sheet value of greater than 5.1 million or greater than 50 employees um, employed by, by the organisation. Satisfy two out of those three, you're a medium to large size organisation and then any contractors you engage, you've got to then consider the payroll rules. Small end client organisations, they don't have to consider the rules. So the exact Existing rules will still apply, whereby the contractor themselves will self-assess their IR35 status. It can apply to non-corporate organisations. So generally we think about companies, but yeah, we, we could have limited liability partnerships or partnerships, um, and that's on, only by reference to a turnover test. So they'll only be in if their turnover exceeds 10.2 million. The end client organisation has to provide the worker and the agency with a status determinations test uh, statement. So rather than the contractor now assessing their, their um, employment status, it now falls on that end client organisation to make that determination. So once they've carried out that assessment, as I say, they give, they pass down that determination statement, which actually, it will actually show whether they're inside or outside of IR35 and the reasons for that. And so they have to pass not only that to the uh, the fee payer and the worker, but everybody else in that chain. So traditionally, you might have a tripartite uh, arrangement where it's end client, agency, worker. So that's only got to pass down to the agency and the worker. But you might have situations where you've got a number of agencies sitting in that chain. So that statement, determination statement, has got to pass all the way down to the to the, the, the end of that chain, if you like, particularly to the fee payer. Um, because if it doesn't, then the, the agency or third party, whatever it is, that fails to do pass that on, uh, then the book stops with them for the for the uh, payroll and tax and national insurance. There's a duty to take reasonable care in reaching a status determination, and failure to do so, that's going to um, make the end client responsible for the payroll and national insurance contribution and apprenticeship levy. Um, so, for instance, you know we've we've all we've heard of situations where um, organisations were making blanket decisions for groups of workers, you know, with no real sort of um, scientific reasoning behind that. That is not taking reasonable care. And in those situations where an organisation does that without consideration to the contractual working arrangements, then, you know, they're going to be held responsible for the, the, the tax and NI. It is possible to make determinations for a group of workers, provided that, you know, not so, not just uh, considering one person, but a group of workers, provided 
provided that group of workers all work in an identical fashion. So not only the contracts are the same, but their working practices are the same. So that would be okay. There's a client-led status disagreement process. So once the worker gets the status determination statement, if they're not happy... With, with that. So essentially, it's going to be if they're deemed inside IR35, they can lodge an appeal, if you like, against that decision. And the end client then has 45 days to respond to that, that appeal. And if they fail to do so, then once again, the end client could be liable for the page win and NIC. There's a, going to be a duty on the client to confirm their size, i.e. are they medium or large size? Uh, and if they do receive that request, they've got to respond within 45 days. It will be the deemed employer, so more often than not, the agency who's paying the worker that has to operate pays your own where the worker is deemed inside IR35. There will be recovery debt provision, so where it's not possible possible for HMRC to recover payroll and tax and national insurance contributions from a deemed employer and they can start moving up the chain but they won't do that in the case of genuine business failure so if an agency has got a genuine business case that's caused it to fail paying those uh, the tax and NI uh, HMRC will not use that those powers they HMRC have um, said that they'll take a light touch approach to penalties in the first 12 months unless there's deliberate non-compliance. A bit of a red herring really because I mean the rules will just be bedding down and HMRC um, may not be doing a lot of uh, aggressive compliance anyway in that first 12 months and they've actually said a lot of their time uh, and I think in those first 12 months will be supporting business, educating business. The payroll rules will take precedence over the this, over CIS, but if the rules don't apply, then it's normal CIS rules. And then the, for contracted out services, the end client doesn't have to con- consider the payroll rules. Now, by contracted out, um, what I'm talking about there is where the end client actually subcontracts uh, per piece of work or a project to another organisation who are then responsible for that work, not only the labour, but the whole project itself and delivering that project, that would be a genuine commercial arrangement. And that's a contracted out service. So the end client, if you like, is absolved of actually um, having to consider uh, the off-payment rules. So essentially, they are the, the new rules, and, and that's what we're having to gear up for come April next year. Thanks, uh, thanks, for that, Andy. Ben, if you, do you want to come in with anything? Uh, any, any follow-up there? No, I think that was pretty um, comprehensive as, uh, <laughs> as to where it's, as to where yeah. it's at. Yeah, yeah I, I would say that. And I think that, that just leading on from that, I guess, is that the main areas that then decide that IR35 status. Andy, if you just go into a bit of detail on that that'd be great yeah okay so there is a, a case now that goes back to 1968 ready mix concrete southeast limited versus minister of pensions and national insurance that sets out the prerequisites for a contract of employment and as old as it is that case um it still actually forms the basis of most IR35 cases, it all hinges on, on, on this case. That set out what the, we call the trinity of status. Um, so tests, personal service of the worker, mutuality of obligation, right of control. They are the three golden key tests 
to consider. There are other tests um, that we'll talk about later, but they are the three key ones. Personal service, you know, what we're looking at there is, is the personal service of the worker an actual requirement of the contract? Does the end client want that, that worker and them alone and won't accept anybody else to do any of the work? So traditionally, we always think about right of substitution um, as being the, uh, the perfect way of demonstrating that there isn't personal service. But substitution isn't the only way. The, the worker could subcontract or have a right to subcontract some of the work, or they could hire an assistant to carry out some of the significant work. And I I mean significant, I'm not talking about administration or menial tasks. And as long as that's, they've they've got that right, and as long as it's understood that they have to pay them as well, you know, that would be another way of demonstrating that there is an absence of personal service rather than just relying on a right of substitution. The right of control tests, and the key there is right of control, not actual control being exerted. Now that asks whether there's sufficient degree of control to make the end client the master of the work. And that's what the ready mix concrete uh, case says. It's some old language there, master of the worker. But it gives you an idea of what we're looking at here. And that's broken down into sort of four subtests. So how, what, when and where. So the how subtest, HMRC will generally dismiss that when we're talking about a highly skilled person. Uh, HMRC will say, well, that's why you hired them in the first place. You know, they're an expert in their field or they're highly skilled. Yeah, we wouldn't expect that you, the end client, would need to tell them how to do it. Then you're moving on to sort of what, which also sort of it kind of links in with how as well. So where you've got somebody that's given regular tasks and instructions, they're, they're supervised or closely micromanaged and they're having to observe particular instructions laid down by the end client that would be control being exerted over them or that that would lead to a right of control being being exerted over them now having to observe statutory regulations such as health and safety or there might be some other industry specific regulations that does not amount to control that's not control at all um what we're talking about here is the end client saying yes i want this particular piece of work done this way and this is how you want to do it that's that's control and that the test also looks at whether you know a worker can be moved from task to task at the whim of the end client without the consent of the worker so you know the, the worker would be working on one particular project let's say and then all of a sudden the end clients well i'd I'd really like you to uh, work on this other project and you're going to do it there'll be there'll be be no no negotiation you're going to do that they are indicators of what control looks like now there might be a degree a little degree of sort of management control if you like which is always required when you're particularly working on a project but as long as that sort of light touch and yeah, the worker, once they've been told what needs doing, you know, essentially they can be left alone to get on with the task. Yeah, that would demonstrate a lack of control because we're only looking at a sufficient degree of control. We're not saying no control whatsoever. Is it sufficient to make them a master over the worker? The when subtest, yeah, the self-employed, they should have 
some autonomy over their working time and not have hours dictated to them, you know, like the typical nine to five. So I know sometimes, you know, professionals are, are paid a daily rate and that's by reference to a professional working day. As long as they've got some discretion as, over when those hours are worked, that would sort of still sort of demonstrate they've got some autonomy. But if the end clients say, no, you will work from nine till five, then that would be a, uh, a demonstration of control being exerted over the worker. I have to clarify that, though, by saying if the, if the worker is working on a site that can only be accessed at certain times, that would make this test neutral. We wouldn't have to give so much significance to that test when we look at the other three. Then the rare subtest that you know, if the work can decide where to carry out the work and for significant amounts of time, and by significant, I would probably say about 25-30% upwards of the whole working time, then that would demonstrate that that worker has a degree of control or a right of control over their working time. Sorry, of where to carry out the work, not working time. It's that this test though becomes neutral if the actual work is dictating the location. So, yeah, the, I think the, the, uh, the easy example would be there if you've got a construction uh, worker that's working on a site. The work can only be done on that site. So that part of the test becomes neutral. So that's the right of control test. Mutuality of obligation, I think we, we, you want to talk about later, and we'll talk a bit, a bit more about that in depth. So those three are the, like I say, the major key tests of determining uh, status and certainly over the last few years uh, HMRC have been very much focusing on the right of control personal service they they don't like to argue mutuality of obligation beneath that you've then got three other tests of of next importance and the first one of those is financial risk and and that asks the question you know what risks is the business exposed to so a self-employed person should they should be responsible for rectifying mistakes in in the worker's own time and at the at their own cost and um, you'd probably generally expect or hope to expect that they might actually pay for uh, professional indemnity insurance or public liability insurance to manage that risk you know, what costs does the business incur you know what, what's its running cost does it invest in assets overheads and, or materials what's its exposure to bad debts um, and the potential for being sued for negligence is there any fixed pricing work if there is you know there's the potential to make a loss yeah, if that work runs over. So those are the kind of things you're looking at. Then you've got provision of own equipment. Now, with this test, there's no monetary limit for this test, but generally, I think, if you're not expending a few hundred pounds, HMRC are more likely to dismiss it, even though their status money will say differently. So where a worker provides essential and major items of equipment, that's going to be a quite a strong pointer towards self-employment. Now, the obvious example here would be a haulier or a taxi driver who provides their own vehicle. Clearly, they're providing their own equipment. And it's most significant when the equipment is 
is absolutely fundamental to the service being provided. Small tools aren't significant, and HMRC say that in their own status manual. But then again, yeah, there might be items of equipment that where it would be unreasonable to expect the, the worker to purchase because they're very expensive. You know, we, we'll be talking about thousands and thousands of pounds. And there's where where that's the case, this test will become neutral. And there is a case, Holby Lorimer, in 1993 that actually supports that. The, what you had there was a vision mixer and he used studio companies. Uh, expensive equipment and the, the judge basically said well you know we, we wouldn't expect him to uh, incur the cost and therefore it, it's neutral when we look at other tests a good example for PSR and kind of our contractors we've got setting out engineers and uh, and some of those kind of will purchase their own engineering equipment and it, right. it, I mean it's it runs into thousands of pounds having like a full one-man robotic kit it's really? uh, if yeah. they're prepared to kind of fork out the expense of that that's an indicator that they're in business, isn't it? In, in my opinion, yeah, um, yeah, it falls under the uh, yeah, it does. It falls under the provision of own equipment, and you know they're, they're investing in an asset. So you're absolutely yeah. absolutely right, uh, most certainly. And again, you know, even if it, it was uh, extremely expensive and they didn't want to purchase it outright, you know, leasing equipment. Yeah, would work in this case as well. And then, just whilst you're talking yeah. about equipment, one thing that always comes up is the uh, the laptop question. So, could people right. straight away think if I'm using if I'm using the client's laptop, that's yeah. a problem? And they also think, well, if I'm using my own laptop, that's not a problem. And from my yeah. understanding, neither are true. But it, it'd be good to get your yeah. Opinion. It's a, it's a good question because it, it does come up a lot, particularly with IT workers who are working on secure sites. Uh, who are provided with laptops for security reasons, there's a reason that they're being provided with it and it makes the test neutral, you know. Um, so uh, absolutely. And then conversely, where, where they're providing their own laptop, I would argue with HMRC that they're, you know, where that laptop is be, is essential to the provision of the services, I would argue that, you know, they are providing essential equipment to get the work done. HMRC won't end that you'll have difficulty in getting HMRC to entertain that argument. That's what I would say don't rely on that. Most certainly. Particularly if you've got an old laptop. If you 1999 job. But if you bought a laptop specifically to actually undertake that work, I think that's a different matter, you know, and you've got, you've got a fair argument. And that, and that would be the case for a lot of our uh, contractors. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They've got their own laptop and they've yeah. purchased it for their business and they will use it some of the time, but when working for certain clients and they need the company's laptop to get onto their systems and to be able to actually access certain things okay. for security yeah. and yeah, and that yeah, it, that that just weakens the argument. So you're you're looking at the other tests really. And just having to accept that, okay, that's going to be neutral. And then the other uh, key test is the business on own account test. Uh, business on own account test. And that um, draws the distinction between the individual who works under the control of and as part of a business of, a, of another and the individual who goes in alone, you know, and sets up on their own account and bears the responsibility for the success or failure of the enterprise. So with that test, what we're looking at are the normal business trappings, so the stock, 
premises, staff, etc. Now, with our one-person companies, they're not going to have those 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 kind of business trappings. That we'll also look at the, the number of clients a worker has. You know, whether they are economically dependent on one client or whether they've got a number of different clients. As I just alluded to, yeah, this test. I mean, it does have limitations for the uh, uh, a professional uh, or somebody who's got a vacation. But there is um, a, an interesting ruling. It's only a first-tier tax tribunal case. It was ECR Consulting. And in that case, there was a sole director. And the company had its own business cards and its own stationery. The work, she, uh, they, the director had a dedicated area at home that they used for office. The company had its own website, which I think was key. And it advertised itself services and it was a member of the what was then the professional contractors group the company retained reserves and it also invested in development over a number of years and it undertook work for a, a number of clients on a fixed price basis and there when you grouped all those facts together the tribunal actually concluded that there was a genuine business and it wasn't a target for IR35 you know it might be those those, those little things that when you put them all together on their own they might seem insignificant, but when you draw them all together, uh, you can help form the picture that, yes, there is a genuine business. And then in that same year, there was also another uh, tribunal, tax tribunal case, Primary Path Limited, and there uh, the contractor promoted business, through, again, they had through their own website, and they also monitored websites of those that were seeking company's expertise and they undertook some speculative work and that yielded a lengthy engagement and again the tribunal there you know considered that um, the contractor was operating a genuine business they are the, the sort of major tests of status that uh, carry most weight but there are a number of sort of more minor tests if you like but like I say I've covered the major ones yeah no that's um, that's fantastic Andy and, and, and quite in depth depth there on 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 those um on those tests as well the, the the two areas i guess that come up most for us are the are the substitution clause which, mm-hmm. which i believe you covered uh there the the, the second one this term that certainly i hadn't heard of before getting involved in this is this um, the moo which uh, is a certainly a hot topic and uh, another court case recently been determined by this could you just go into a little bit more detail on on that subject and, and why it is potentially uh contentious with HMRC? Certainly will, but I want to say a little bit more about right of substitution. Yeah, please do. So what I was going to say there is that the the main case law, really, that uh, this is founded on um, is a case called Express and Echo Publications Limited versus Tanton. That was 1999, employment law case, and that involved a newspaper uh, delivery driver and Mr. i.e. Mr. Tanton. Now, he had a clause in his contract that said if he was unable or unwilling to perform the services personally, then he would arrange at his own expense entirely for another suitable person to perform services. And the judges concluded on that basis that there was no requirement for the personal services of Mr. Tampton, and there could not be a contract of employment. So when we're looking at the genuine right of substitution, the worker has to send the substitute and they have to pay them. So that's their responsibility. They are the two features of a genuine right of substitution. If we've got that 
in our contracts, and that's a great starting place. But what I would say is, I mean, the substitution clause, as you're probably aware, is the most probably one of the most easiest to write into a contract. There is no point in putting it in the contract if it's not a reality. It's just a sham, and HMRC will see through it. It's best not being in there. With this test, we are looking at the right. We're not looking at whether or not it's been invoked, although if it has, then great. So it's the right that's important, not that it's actually uh, happened. If it does, then that is going to be a powerful indicator that the personal service of the worker isn't a requirement of the contract and therefore what we've got is a self-employed relationship uh, but more often than not this is hypothetical i think 99 of the time you know substitution very rarely gets used recent judgments in in tax cases have considered you know the inherent likelihood of substitution actually happening so going back to what i said about sham clauses even if you what you think uh, you've got in your contract it might be a genuine right to substitution the court will actually consider consider, well, what's the likelihood of that ever happening? Again, I'm coming back to the reality here. If it's in the contract, then the end client has to sign up to that. The, this is where the agency, I think, plays an important part in mirroring its contract, particularly the right of substitution. If they've got a right of substitution in the lower level agreement between it and worker, they have to ensure it's reflected in the upper level agreement between the agency and the end client. Uh, so it must be understood that in those in the circumstances where a worker wants to substitute, the end client would accept a replacement worker. The end client, of course, yeah, won't want just any Tom, Dick or Harry turning up at that site. So they are entitled to a what they call reasonable right of veto. As long as that reasonable right is only for ensuring that the substitute or the, the replacement worker has got the necessary experience, uh, qualifications, skills, that doesn't diminish a, right, a genuine right of substitution. If, however, they can just reject a substitute for any reason whatsoever beyond you know, checking the suitability, then that will uh, fetter the right of substitution, and uh, it will not be as powerful. Now, talking about fettered right of substitution, HMRC will be quick to dismiss what they consider a fettered right of substitution. So if they say is if a worker doesn't have blanket licence to send a substitute and or it requires the end client consent in writing or they want to interview the replacement workers before they can begin the work, then HMRC will consider the, the right of substitution fettered and they will therefore uh, consider right of substitution as to be only one factor amongst many to be considered. So it's really diluting the right of substitution. And also, you know, if the worker's been working on a lengthy contract for some time, HMRC will actually consider whether right of substitution has actually occurred over that period of time as a kind of litmus test, if you like. Something for me just, just on substitution, I think, yeah. to, to, to clear up. If somebody, if it turns out somebody hasn't got the right of substitution or the reality is that they can't substitute due to the nature of the tasks, that mm. doesn't mean that they're 
inside of R35, that's just an indicator. Yeah, and that's absolutely right, because bear in mind, we're looking at a whole series of tests. So that, and that's what IR35 requires. It's two-part. You look at the contractual arrangements, you look at the working practices, and you then apply all these employment status tests. So um, although personal service, which includes the right of substitution, is one of our golden tests, there are also two other golden tests, right of control, neutrality or obligation. Yeah, I mean, even if we were to, uh, if the right of control was in the worker's favour, we could actually stop there because we'd actually say they are that they are self-employed. But you're absolutely right. Even though we might not have right of substitution, there's a, a bunch of other tests to uh, uh, to examine. Um, yes, some of the tests don't carry as much weight as others, but nevertheless, we go through the tests and then we stand back and we look at the overall picture and then we decide, am I looking at a decided employee? Am I looking at a bona fide self-employed person? So absolutely right. Um, what I was going to say there was even where a right of substitution might, might be slightly tainted, which was the case in Gensel Software Limited, who, who I represented at First Tier Tax Tribunal, the contractor there, his right of substitution was slightly tainted because the Department of Work and Pensions, they had to agree to uh, uh, propose substitutes, skill and security, and they carried out security checks. Um, but it didn't restrict the, the right being invoked. By the, by the contractor where he was unable to work um, or carry out the work, should I say. And the judge actually concluded, because HMRC had argued otherwise, so this is fettered, you know, uh, but the judge actually con con concluded that the right of substitution existed in a, in a hypothetical contract and that shifted the balance away from employment. So it just goes to show you that, you know, where you feel it might be slightly fettered, um, it can still have um, or carry some weight. The other thing I was going to say was, you know, if possible, why not utilise, invoke the right of substitution, even if it's just for a day, if that would be sufficient to demonstrate that you've got a genuine right of substitution and there's no personal service requirement of the Worker. Now, I did that years ago with a uh, haulage company in Northamptonshire, and um, they were subject to HMRC compliance, uh, page one compliance check. And there was a long standing argument about a particular haulier. The lorry driver was using the uh, haulage company's uh, lorry, but um, there were a number of other factors that kind of sort of uh, made it look as if they, they were an, uh, an employee. But I looked at the contract and there was a, a right of substitution in there. I said, well, look, we've got a right of substitution. Do you accept it as genuine? Yes, we do. I said, well, why not let him invoke it? And we did. And we then produced the evidence to the uh, HMRC, including the, the, the invoice which the, the haulier paid for the, the use of the substitute. And HMRC conceded. Um, so it shows you how powerful that can be. If it is at all possible, you know, try and utilise the right of substitution. Then just moving on to mutuality of obligation, yeah, not only causes you headaches, but the profession and HMRC alike. It's a difficult concept to get your head around. At its simplest, mutuality of obligation, it's about a legal obligation that, me that makes up a contract. Now, yeah, both parties are going to have some obligations towards each other. And then for, for work-related contracts, that will be the work-pay bargain. So that's to say, 
in return for the engager being obliged to pay a fee or remuneration, the worker's got to be obliged to provide their own work or skill. That's the minimum requirement for a contract to exist. Uh, and that's both present in you know, employment and commercial uh, contracts alike. So I refer to that as general mutuality of obligation because there, there are two aspects to mutuality of obligation. That's the general one, which HMRC basically hone in on and refuse to argue or entertain any arguments beyond that. But there is a more specific meaning of mutuality of obligation for tax and employment law cases. And it's a core component that has to be present in order to create a contract of employment. And so I would refer to that as specific mutuality of obligation. And that takes on much greater significance than HMRC's argument. Like I say, they've only, they'll only recognise general mutuality of obligation. And it's a very narrow and limited interpretation. As you know, that's reflected in CES tool because it doesn't really touch on that. But it's the wrong approach. There was a case, upper tier tribunal case, professional game match officials limited. Judgment came out in May of this year. And the upper tier, tier tribunal said mutuality of obligation is not only relevant to determining whether there was a contract at all, but is a critical element in delineating a contract of service from a contract for services. Contract of service being employment, contract for services being self-employment. Then there was a ruling in 2011, first year tax tribunal case, JLJ Services Limited. Now, the judge introduced a concept of mutuality of obligation, which I quite like because it invoked that sort of sense of loyalty that exists in an employment relationship. And the judge there said a touchstone of being an employee is the hope and expectation that there will be some relationship of faithfulness between employer and employee. And the employer will generally endeavour to keep staff employed even when work is short. Contract workers will be dispensed with first. And I think that kind of demonstrates that it goes to the heart of neutrality and obligation. Just, uh, just, to pick up, sorry, just to pick up this, it's something that we've got in our contract for, 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 for our workers is zero notice both ways from client and uh, and contractor and it's something we made the decision a couple of years ago because yeah. the importance of showing that well hang on if the if the project gets stopped for whatever reason there's absolutely no mutuality of obligation between either party and they can end the assignment there and then and I, I, I was told that was quite an important thing to have to show that there is no ongoing obligation between them yeah you're absolutely right and I'm I would have spoken. Oh, I was going to speak about that later, but oh, you're sorry. Right. No, that's quite <laughs> right. no, it's an absolutely valid point and and a correct one to make. I mean, normally um, termination is a is a minor status test that we, we would look at. But I always you're at, uh, I always couple it with mutuality obligation because it does absolutely feed into mutuality of obligation. Yeah, if you've got zero notice period, that will demonstrate that both parties really haven't got an obligation towards one another. And and I would certainly be using that as an argument in, in an IR35 inquiry, for instance, that it, this was a demonstration that there was no mutuality of obligation. So yeah, absolutely right. And, and I've, I've seen it used a number of times for, yeah. for a variety of reasons. And it, it actually said to the contractor, just see it as a positive because that shows that what you're doing is 
is uh, you're, you're a limited company, uh, and it's yeah. it, it, it's a good indicator that uh, does it indicate financial risk as well? Showing that well, hang on a minute, you've got no work the next day, you're operating at financial it, risk. It, it certainly does, absolutely. Yeah. You've been yeah, you've not only been exposed to a financial well, you've been exposed, and you're actually it's a reality as well. You know, mm. that's it. Your revenue streams come to an end from that particular contract. So yeah, absolutely right. Uh, the other tribunal uh, ruling I was going to mention there in that same year of 2011 was a case called Marlin Limited and that demonstrates demonstrated the point that contractors are sidelined during downtime. JCB was the end client there. They sent contractors home when computers went down and the contractors didn't receive a fee. On the employees of JCB, on the other, on, on the other hand, they remained in situ and their salary uh, remained undisturbed. And that demonstrated to the tribunal uh, that JCB did not consider itself under any obligation to provide work or pay, even after an offer had been made and accepted. And there was also in that case, both parties terminated the contract early, which was what you were alluding, which we were talking about. Marlon's termination, i.e. the contractor, that was precipitated by a better offer. But those factors were seen as inconsistent with a, a relationship in which Moo was present. So, i.e., there was no mutuality of obligation. And then just coming back to the Gensel case, there the contractor had contracts with the Department of Work and Pensions. They were for short durations and the, the engagement didn't uh, uh, extend beyond the specific project for which Jensen was engaged. There was a break of two weeks between the penultimate and final contracts, which indicated no contractual obligation um, on the part of DWP to provide continuous work. And then Gensel themselves, they terminated the contract when a better offer came along, just like the uh, Marlon case. And there, therefore, the judge concluded uh, that the essence of the relationship was there was no continuing obligation on the part of the DWP to provide work. If it chose to abandon the project, there's no contractual basis upon which with Mr. Wells, who was the director of Gensel, could demand further work. And uh, she, uh, the judge said, I am satisfied that these factors point away from a contract of, of, of employment. Do, do you think with mutuality obligation, the one... <laughs> The reason why HMRC try to have a very different and limited view of it is it, it's actually such a powerful, if interpreted in the way that we're discussing, it has such a powerful effect because that is the case for so many limited company contractors that they could demonstrate that there isn't mutuality obligation purely on things like notice period, losing work because of because of projects being shelved. Do you think they purposely ignore it because of that or is it for other, other reasons? We don't know the reasons why they won't entertain the, the, the whole argument, but they, yeah, they're, they're just focused, like I say, on, on a general mutuality of obligation. But they do so at their peril because, you know, they've lost cases, I mean, particularly with the uh, professional game match officials, and they were trounced in the Appetit Tax Tribunal over mutuality of obligation, but they don't seem to have learnt their lesson um, because They've lost previous cases, um, not on mutuality alone, but some have. Uh, but yet they still stubbornly present this basic new argument and won't entertain anything beyond that. So you could be right, but like I say, they just generally tend to dismiss it. They're only interested in uh, establishing mood to form the basis of a contract, which is not which is not neither here nor there. But uh, as I say, you know, 
uh, if they continue in that vein, they will continue to lose more cases where there is a clear demonstration that mutuality of obligation doesn't exist. I know you're saying, well, you you see it more with the uh, industry that you're involved in. Um, A lot of the inquiries that I've been involved with, particularly with IT guys, they're on 30-day notice periods, so you can't really rely on the the notice termination clauses. And so you're looking for other things within the contract. So it's important to address mutuality on two levels. So post-contract, once the contract's finished, there shouldn't be any expectation on the worker's part that they're going to be offered further work. And there shouldn't be any expectation on the client's part that the worker would accept any work that's offered once the contract's finished. Now, that's, that's the easy part, I think. The more difficult one is addressing mutuality when the contract's uh, actually happening. It's been worked out. So the duration of the, of, the, of the contract. So there, what we're looking for is, you know, things like, can the worker refuse uh, any work that's offered them during the contractual term without them being penalised? You've also you, you've already spoken about early termination. That's very powerful. Absolutely. Is the worker paid? regardless of whether there's any work done. So, for instance, you know, where a project ends prematurely, but does the contract, if the contractor still gets paid for the remainder of the time of the contract, or if they're paid a daily rate and there's no work available for half of the day, but they're still being paid, that would be an indicator that there's mutuality present because, as, as, as you suggested earlier, once the project's come to an end, that should be it for a self-employed person. There shouldn't be any expectation that they're going to receive any further pay, even though, you know, they've probably got two months or so to run on, uh, uh, on, their, on, on their contract. Um, and it, and it's, it's definitely a... A strength in our kind of contract to work force and in, in the construction sector I, I do see that if if a project gets stopped or whatever it is or their contract or the project's finished that's it and if they're not working they're not getting paid this is, it's it's as simple as that that they they get paid for the work that they do and I think it's such a, a strong one a strong case for our our workers whereas perhaps substitute the right of substitution is a bit weaker in the construction sector I think where it fails there neutrality obligation can be a can be a strength yeah that's good good um and I think that um, that that overview uh, is so insightful for people in terms of uh, those areas and we've obviously focused on on a couple there. We just wanted before we, we wrap things up PSR delighted to have, uh, have signed uh, up with the Kingsbridge tool, states determination tool, something that I know you've been, been heavily involved in uh, the development of. Could you just give an overview of, uh, of the tool itself and, and how this can assist clients and contractors? So it's an automated online tool and that can be used by the end client, the fee payer, contractor. It addresses all the key areas of status that we've, we've spoken about, you know, personal service, right to control, mutuality obligation, financial risk, equipment, business owned account, and also integration. And there's about 40 questions in total, and it takes around about 10 minutes to complete. Most of those are yes, no answers. You've got a warning and a disclaimer at the outset. They, the answers have to reflect the reality of the contract and working practices, and where necessary, support it with evidence. And the tool should only be used if somebody's got the appropriate understanding of IR35. There's no point in releasing a novice on it because you won't get the right answer. There is guidance that's provided around various of the status tests. So it's to help you on your way while you're completing the the, uh, the, the tool. And then, although those, like I say, the, the, the questions 
are asking for yes no answers there's an opportunity to provide supporting evidence to your answer so where you want to actually make a point regarding one particular question you want to enhance that answer you can actually there's a little text box i think for um, providing further evidence now once the, the questions have been completed the tool will generate an assessment of the employment status of the worker which is then sent to the end client um, the uh, agency or the, the fee payer for for sign off and then once that sign off has been completed by the end client the status determination statement can be issued to the parties in the chain if the contract is only using the tool it will only provide a report about their status so a status determination statement can only be produced by the end client or the agency so it'll only give the contractor an, an idea of their status regardless of the status determination whether it's inside outside the tool will give an indication of the worst case scenario and provide an estimate of payers' and rush insurance liability, which I think is pretty useful. Yeah, that's in the case if the worker were deemed to be inside IR35. There's also a feature whereby recruiters can determine a role, you know, simply for the purposes of advertising that role. So it's not going to throw out a status determination, but it will give them a good idea of where that role particularly lies. Where there is an indeterminate determination, i.e. it's borderline, it sits in the middle of inside-outside, Kingsbridge will review that manually and they will give an opinion. So, But it's I think it's important to note, even with an inside-or-outside determination, you know, an end client or an agency, they can still ask Kingsbridge to carry out a manual review if they so wish, if they wanted a more forensic review. What I would say is because the tool addresses all the key areas of status, it's will produce a reliable and an accurate status determination and it meets the requirements of the duty to take reasonable care. So it, uh, it satisfies all those the number of different requirements. There is a built-in appeal process whereby the contractor will get a notification of the uh, status opinion and the contractor will be asked to acknowledge that uh, that assessment by either pressing one or two two buttons, i.e. they accept it or reject it. Now, if they reject it, that then alerts uh, end client uh, agency that they are essentially appealing. But from there on in, it will be up to the the end client, if you like, to actually carry out their their own appeal process. We we don't do that for, for them. Although we, we, we can, you know, if we were asked to act as independent arbiter or, or to assist, you know, we'd be quite happy to do that. And then finally, you know, the questions will be adjusted you know, where there's any significant case law that affects the interpretation of any particular status test. So what we're talking about there, upper tier tax tribunal and beyond, if there's something of significance that's going to, uh, like I say, alter how we, we view a particular test, then we will amend the questions and the weighting. So, you know, end clients and fee payers can rest assured that the, the, the tool will always be up to date. I think there's a couple of those in process now, isn't there? Or like, is it Eamon Holmes? He's going, he's, he's appearing. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, so it's still a while, it's still a while away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. And the professional game match officials limited, I mean, HMRC have appealed that as well. Yeah. So, and, and is it Hawks? Is it, was it Paul Hawksby? Have they, they've appealed him? Appealed? 
instructions. They the HMRC won that uh, at Upper Tier Tax Tribunal. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. So they they appealed it anyway, and they won, didn't they? That was right. They they, said, they they did absolutely. So at the moment, they're having a bit of success with entertainments. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see what uh, what next year produces because. Uh, all those appeals now will be heard next year. Okay, um, and I appreciate that. Um, I think the, um, the 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 tool itself, uh, having used it, is is very intuitive. It's it's easy to use. Obviously, one of the reasons that that we chose the product was having your expertise behind it and having your your credibility built into this, which I think is key. So, for anyone listening to this that wants access to the tool, we'll put in the show notes the um, the link to it to the portal and um, obviously the, the the contact for for the PSR representatives to get in touch with and I'd just like to, to finish with saying how good it has been to, to talk with you on this subject clearly 40 years of expertise the whole the whole point of the inspire podcast is to inspire people to achieve great things and and clearly what you've done over the number of years is excelled in this subject and representing over 500 people and winning the vast majority should inspire people to just think about uh, honing in their skills that knowledge taking the time to prepare and going into detail and actually investing time in this in in these subjects and, and you're clearly still passionate about it now 40 years later and defending uh, these cases so um th- thank you for for joining us today andy I'm sure this will be educational for, for contractors and clients. Um, and we look forward to working with you uh, over the coming months on this. Yep. Thank you very much.